the life and vitality of every church is measured in the sound of children. And I don't know if you realize it or not, but we have some life and vitality here, amen? That being said, this morning's message, in, you know, in light of everything we've already kind of traversed with turning our attention to tomorrow's anniversary of, of September 11 and understanding the, the magnitude of the world we live in, uh, felt like it would be you know, compelling and, and was compelled to kind of be in this picture. And you can ask the staff, sometimes we kind of do some gymnastics where God is leading us as far as the progression of sermons and worships sets and all the things that are there, we, we give these considerations quite a bit of, of scrutiny as we as we look at all of it and pray about it. We landed on John chapter 11, and I want you to know that for the next couple of weeks we'll be here, so I'm going to dissect a very familiar story, but hopefully in a way that, that gives you something new to think about and challenges you. So I would have you turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 11 and find verse number 1. And when you get there, if you would stand in honor of God's word. John chapter 11, verse number 1 says, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. These things he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, that they thought that he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. And Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Would you pray with me? Well, when we come to Scripture, we are reminded oftentimes when we see familiar passages that you still have something new to teach us each and every time we look to the Scriptures. I pray that we as we would become intent listeners and learners today, that we would study this passage in such a way that we would see you, maybe see you just a little differently, a little more powerfully, or that we would recognize your authority as king over even death. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is such a hard topic oftentimes, and there's so much grief, and there's so much heaviness of grief in the world we live in. There are challenges for us when we come to the topic because no one can avoid it. We we oftentimes realize that when we look to the world around us that any measure of life and any measure of gift that God has given us in any measure of days means that we will have, we will have the opportunity to, to feel loss. Well, that being said, when we get to the passage, there's something here that, that I hope that you would learn. And I know you didn't probably hear it um, in the, the measure of what I read, but 
I want to know that your life would be dramatically different if you were a billionaire. Right? And you guys are like, what are you talking about? But it would, wouldn't it? Would your life be dramatically different if you were a billionaire? I mean, think about what you would do if you were a billionaire. I, most of us can't even imagine. Me and my son, we took this, ex, this explorative journey on, on a, the internet, looking at trying to help him understand and help, help me visualize and see it. The distance that, that from one million to one billion, and, and most people think that that's just a step, but let me tell you, it is an outrageous distance. And so most people are like, man, I'd just be happy to be a millionaire, right? Well, let me, let me assure you that hopefully by the conclusion of today's message, you'll realize that you're both. And, and you'll, say, you'll say to yourself, that brother Ben is just outside his mind. But trust me, I think the science backs it up. We look to the passage here and we see something. We see that a man is sick. And you say to yourself, well, sickness we have. And as one author put it, and one famous line in a, in a very famous musical, we have the sickness, what we need is the cure, right? It says a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore, the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. There's this moment where you begin to, to see the stitching together of these names, which we've seen before in Scripture. If you are a student of the New Testament, and you should each and every one be a student of the New Testament, I would love for you to look at your neighbor and say, be a student of the New Testament. Because when you are, you begin to hear these names over and over again. And you begin to see how they interact and how they are woven together and how God uses them to, to teach us and to show us and to give us this great demonstration of the world that we live in and what, what to think of it and what to do in it. There's this moment where we realize that this is a family with whom Jesus is well acquainted. I'm going to challenge you this morning. If you have an aspiration for your family, if you have a desire for your core unit, for, for your life and for those that you love, live a life and have a family that is known by Jesus. And I, and I know that you know, it's going to sound kind of um, rhetorical because Jesus knows each and every one of us, but the next step was their description of their brother was that this is someone that Jesus loved, that it was invisible to them. That Jesus cared for Lazarus in a way that is described in this bigger picture love. You know, I don't know about you, but when we talk about men, oftentimes we're like, oh man, he's a stand-up guy, or he's, he's reputable, or I respect him a lot, or he's hardworking, or man, that's a good guy. But oftentimes we do not say, man, I love that guy. And I would suggest that if we read the scriptures, we might begin to change the dynamic. Or we begin to say the highest praise we might be able to give to another person is to say that we love them, that we care about them. But we're, we're told that this strips us of our, of our manhood and our, or our, our virile nature as men, and we're oftentimes challenged to not be very loving. Not in our language, not towards our children, not in our, in our behavior, and certainly not in our grief. But Jesus is challenging that model. It is seen by those who know him that he loves Lazarus. The first point, if you're taking notes today, is that Jesus knows our context. I want to challenge you to hear me say something very important here. Whenever you study the New Testament, and because you are now students of the New Testament, if you weren't before you walked in here, I challenge you to be so, so you are so. Amen? You don't sound convinced, church. 
Context will always determine the meaning of any passage of scripture you read, of anything that you're trying to understand. You have to set it in its right context in order to understand it. Jesus is familiar with the context of Lazarus, of Mary and Martha. He knows their stories. He understands their lives. She comes in. She bathes his feet. The disciples are having a hard time with it. The context tells us that Jesus is already interwoven into this family and into these lives so much so that they can send a message to him. Now, I don't know about you, but wouldn't it be awesome if you could send a message to Jesus? To say, hey, Jesus, one of our own, whom you care about, wait, whom you love is not well. And you say, wow, that'd be pretty cool, wouldn't it? I mean, let me get my phone. Do you have the number? Email address? How about just good old mailing address? But the truth is, is that we can talk to him all the time, anytime, the same way. And we can say, Jesus, these whom you love need you. He knows your context. One of the most powerful pieces about that is what we're going to see in a couple of, of paragraphs. You're going to see this moment where the disciples get really uncomfortable about their context. And they are uncertain about where Jesus is headed to. And they have a hard time with it. But because he knows your context, trust me, he understands what it's going to cost in order to come and be a part of your life. And that's exciting. Your context means all the things. When people sit with me and they get ready to get married, oftentimes I'll take them through an exercise where I'll say, when you leave this meeting today, you have to sit down with each other and you have to take the word and out and you have to write it on a piece of paper and you have to tell the other side of the story everything else that you've not been telling them. Some of you are like, Brother Ben, where were you before I got married? Because oftentimes we wander into a relationship and we, we dress ourselves and we groom ourselves and we hygiene ourselves to a great place. And then we put ourselves in front of somebody else and we say, wow, my wife will tell you there's never been a better example of me having good manners at our first date. And they disappeared after that. But the context will, will fill you in. And I just tell people, write the word and, and I say, go back and all the things you're embarrassed about and all the stories you don't want to tell, you should start to unfold those for the, the opposite person, your spouse, your future spouse. The reason why this exercise is important is because wouldn't you rather know now? And before you make all those promises before the church and before God and before you put the rings on, before you wed yourself forever and for always, wouldn't it be better to have that information up front? Because I think a lot of people would tell you, if we had known this, these things might not have ever happened. But Jesus, he is intimately acquainted with the context, the whole story. He knows all the and dot, dot, dots in your life. He knows everything. And he sees Mary and Martha, and they can send him a message directly and say, Lazarus, whom you love, is sick. Verse number four says, when Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God. I'm going to give you a little spoiler. I mean, of course, we've read it already. We know that he dies, and it's like, Jesus, are you confused? But this is part of our understanding of his being king over even death, is that it is part of your narrative, whether you want to admit it or not. And that he is author over its finality in such a way that he's going to interrupt it in this story. And if you're not familiar, you're going to have to come for three weeks to get the whole picture. Okay, so make plans. Okay, just mark it off. And because you're good students of the New Testament, you'll want to be here each and every week, amen? You're getting a little more confident. I'm excited about this. 
You say, well, we're going to come back and find out the, the stunning, you know, next chapter. You know, next week will be the penultimate. That's the one before the last, and then in two weeks, there'll be the ultimate. You know, you'll get the, the, the finale. Because you're good students of the New Testament, you'll, you'll be tuned in. Same bad time, same bad location. And if you're old enough to know that reference, then you don't meet some of this audience very well. We see this picture here where Jesus says, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. There are many things that happen throughout the course of the New Testament that define his majesty, his regal nature, that are intentionally woven into the story that we see describing his ability to, to govern and to, and to manage all of the things in such a way that we, none of us, possess the ability to do so. Even when he speaks about the future, which we don't yet know, he already understands that things will not be the way that we expect them to be. Most of us in the course of our life don't realize that God has already foreseen so many of the things that will change in your life. And if you could go back and you'd say, man, if only I had known. Well, God knew. I could have saved myself all of this heartache, all of this trouble, and I could have just stepped over right into that right relationship with God, and I would have I've been so much happier along the way. But aren't you glad that God allows you to wander and he also insists on calling you home. This moment, he says, this is, this is about my glory. This is about this moment. And you begin to wonder something. And if you, if you haven't already begun to see it in the course of your study, then you'll begin to realize that your life, some of the things that you encounter, will be defining moments and people seeing the glory of God in your own life and, and they will begin to see him better because of your life which has been transformed. And if you don't believe that, just come with me and hang out with me and talk with me about the things that I have been through, let alone the things that you have been through, let alone the things that other people that I have ministered have been through and you'll begin to see the glory of God and the fingerprints of him on absolutely everything. There's this moment, this turning in the picture here where he says this and Verse number five says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And it, it, notice that it emphasizes each of them. He loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. The sisters write to Jesus and say, he whom you love is sick. And the disciples are now recalling and saying, oh, no, no, no. They say he loved Lazarus, but we know he loved Mary and Martha as well. And isn't it like us to to demote ourselves in most situations, sometimes as a real humility, sometimes as a false one, where we will come into a situation and somebody will say something and we'll say, oh, no, 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 not me. It's Lazarus, Jesus. Lazarus is the one whom we love. And the disciples will say, no, no, no. Jesus loved all three of them. And it's important for us to see keenly and rightly through the eyes because the world will tell us the real story. And Time will tell us the real story, and the scriptures will tell us the ultimate real story about his love. And his love is for each of these. In your notes, if you're taking them this morning, point number two is that Jesus' love for others is ever-present. So much so that when this is written about it, you realize that anytime you see a picture, and because you're good New Testament students, when you study this, you'll realize that somebody was recording this, that John was writing this down after the fact, and he's stitching it all back together, and when he gets to this part, he is recalling it, and he's putting it down on paper to say, Jesus loved them both, and their brother who was sick. 
each and every one of them he loved. I wonder oftentimes in, in the course of the dialogue that I have with people when people have broken fellowship or relationship with God or the church or the, even with other religious people in their life, if they realize how much Jesus loves them. I wonder if they know just exactly what he thinks of them. The next point in the next couple of verses as we get into this is going to start to un- just completely unstitch all of your preconceived notions and deteriorate them down to a place where now you'll have material to build back with, but you won't have lies in your head anymore, I hope. Look with me. It goes on in the passage, and as we, as we begin to read it, so when he heard, verse number six, that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. Right then and right there, you're like, man, brother, man, you just proved it, that Jesus loves me in spite of me. And you're like, now that's not, I don't, I don't feel convinced. The disciples know that what Jesus just said proves it. The disciples know that what he just said puts a big exclamation point on his love of Lazarus. It just this defining moment where he's like, we're going to Judea. You guys, are, you guys aren't stunned. Maybe you're not as good as New Testament students as you should be. But you can get there. Stay with me. We'll, we'll do our best. We'll work together. i got to learn some things too. Trust me. Read why this is a definitive moment in his declaration of love for Lazarus. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you. Are you going there again? And there's this moment where the clear definition of danger that is present for Jesus has been defined in him saying, this location has been a rough spot for you. Are you sure you want to go there? But Jesus didn't say, maybe we should go see Lazarus. He said, let's go. I think that if you are not keenly aware of that Jesus is willing to wade right into the rough patches of your neighborhood and your life to get right to you in your time of need, then you are missing him because he's doing it right here. Where he understands that when he starts to teach in the next couple of verses, he's got to unpack something for us where he starts to dialogue with us about this. And he's like, there's this... There's light, and we can see the perils. There's darkness, and we can't. He's like, don't you understand that I know exactly what it's going to cost to go see Lazarus right now. I know what kind of dangerous situation he's in, and I know the people there don't like me very much. But I am a person who stands in front of you today that I am so grateful that Jesus reached into my life in spite of the friends that I had that didn't want anything to do with him and would have done him harm, even though he came close to me. And I'm grateful that he does the same for you. And I'm excited that we get to serve a king who does this. Because even when he knows that we're coming to the conclusion of our life, he's willing to wade right into a bad situation where he knows the world would breathe him threat and harm and still come. When he says, let's go to Judea, he makes a definitive statement. I am scared of no place and I'm scared of no one when it comes to loving and caring you, caring for you in the midst of this world. And there is nowhere where I will not go. And if you don't believe me, keep reading and keep being a student of the New Testament. And what you'll find is when he gets to that part where you realize this isn't the scariest place he's going. That he's willing to go all the way to the scariest place a person can imagine. And when his disciples are like, this is dangerous. And he's like, you think that I came here, didn't, ex- didn't expect any danger? That's not what he says. 
Verse 9 says, Are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. These things he said, and after that, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him. And he begins to tell us, the point number three in your outline is, is that Jesus is aware of the perils of this world. Jesus knows that there is certainly darkness, and there is certainly, he is certainly light. And in the midst of this story, as he unfolds it, is he's like, there's time in the day. And I'm going. And I'm not scared. I see clearly. But I would suggest that if Jesus is teaching us something here, you don't see clearly. Because some of our lives are so tangled up in darkness that we don't realize why we're stumbling. But we're stumbling because we don't live in the light of the salvation that our Savior would offer us. And that we don't know his love. And we have denied him the, the, the right of his majesty to declare his love and for us to receive it. And I believe that this is something we have stitched up because we believe that God doesn't care about us. That God is is more concerned with his own well-being than yours, that he is somewhere distant and not willing to be in our midst. But all of that is dispelled in this story. Jesus has these few days where he stays knowing that the time has to progress so that Lazarus will pass. Otherwise, the story does not work out the same way. His timing is impeccable. Although we don't always understand it. Those two days where Lazarus is sick and coming to the conclusion of his life, those are the ones sometimes when we're in the midst of the story saying, where are you at? And he's like, I'm coming when I'm supposed to come. Because I'm the king. And you're not here to ask me what I'm supposed to do for you. You're here to ask me what you would have me instruct you in doing. And the picture here is something completely different where we see it and we're this moment. I don't know about you, but when you study this, you're like, couldn't he just run on ahead and sorted it out before he got to the end? Spoiler alert, next week we'll talk about that. But you're going to have to come back for that piece. We get to this moment in verse 12. No, excuse me, verse 11. These things he said, and after that, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. Once again, this, this glaring declaration. Lord, if he's on the mend, let it be. Judea is sketchy. It's dangerous. They want to hurt you. He'll get better. I believe that is the prevailing thought oftentimes of us in church life when we look to those who are in our midst and are in need. We, we think to ourselves, well, maybe this will turn for the better. We should assume at every moment that this could be the last conversation anyone will ever have. I guarantee September of the 11th is a clear picture in all of our hearts and minds that when we wake up on that day, we are reminded that thousands of people's lives were cut dramatically shorter than they were expected to be. I don't know about you, but it's a clear reminder that we look at this moment and we say to ourselves, we don't need to be so concerned with the dangers in the world around us because we know that it's more dangerous to not tell people the truth about Jesus 
what it might cost them if we don't tell them the truth. Verse 12, and as we've read it here, and then verse 14, verse 13 says, however, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. Oftentimes we are, we are guilty as charged because we, I mean, they, they are following Jesus, but they don't have the whole New Testament to study. We have all this time by which to study the New Testament and dissect it and understand it, to, to, to pour over it and to try to understand its context and its meaning and dissect the words and look at all the tenses and, and look at all the things. And we, we, we have all this effort to study. The disciples are just following Jesus and they're getting it right then. It is right now and they're just having to make conversation and, and discussion and they are doing sometimes a very poor job of it. Just like we would if you were here with us. They don't understand Jesus. Sometimes I wonder how we're doing there. Verse 14 says, Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. I mean, it's like this moment, they're like, wait, 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 wait. He was sick and we waited. You know it's dangerous. And now he's dead and we're still going? And most of us, we can't. With grief, we don't realize the importance of all these pieces. And it's like, yes, we're still going. We're still going because the right response is to go. And there's this moment. And he pitches out there this, this statement. He says, I'm glad that I wasn't there because your faith is going to grow as a result of what comes next. Did you understand that if he swept in and he fixed all of our problems before they got real bad? You know, we wouldn't believe in him at all. We would just be like, he doesn't. Owes this to me. I deserve this piece. Because every time I ask him, he just fixes it. And then we would believe that he worked for us. Instead of us having a king that we're supposed to be completely submitted to right up to the end of our life. But it doesn't work like that. It works like us understanding that he's in charge and that he understands the timeline and we are submitting to him. And it's okay. He makes the, the very last sentence in the, in the verse I just read. Nevertheless, let us go to him. And Thomas, who was called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Lazarus isn't the only one that's in harm here. Jesus takes us to a dangerous spot. Jesus is inviting you and me into a dangerous spot because he rules over everything, including those who have perished. And he gives us the opportunity to go and be a part. I told you at the beginning of the sermon that you were a millionaire, or at least I would prove that you were. And most of you think to yourself that I'm measuring it out in money, but I'm not. Did you know the human life? In the human life, that you are, it's comprised of many things that you have been given. And for some of us, we take complete, completely for granted what we have. Did you know that in your course of your life, 621.5 million times, you will blink your eyes? You're a millionaire. Uh, more impressive than that, you'll take over 672 million breaths. Million breaths. He has given to you millions and millions and millions of breaths, of which you have now lungs that are filled with breath, so that when you press that oxygen, which you are not giving back to him, by the way, we covered that a couple weeks ago, right? And when you give that back out, it, it, 
issue forth sound and you can make words and those words you can talk to people with. And if you talk to people in those 672 million opportunities to breathe and you just use half of them to talk about Jesus. But there's a more astonishing statistic. And I told you you were a billionaire. Not once, but twice over in the average lifespan, you have over 2.5 billion heartbeats. If you only live a half of an average life, you're still a billionaire. And if you only live a quarter, you're a wild millionaire. But the question is, is that when you look at Jesus and you understand that he is in charge of all of this, including our very, very coming to a conclusion of all of our beats of our heart and all of our breaths and our lungs and all of the blinking of our eyes, and you ask yourself the question, I have all of this resource. What will I do with it for my king? What will I do with it before I die? Well, I hope that the answer will not be that you will sound like Thomas. Let us also go that we may die with him. He speaks here of fear, but I would like to turn it and say, what if we said that meaning that we would go with him towards the cross? That we would sacrifice our lives and lay them down, that we would give our life unto death all the way up to the very last moment. Let us also go with him that we may die. Because when Jesus looks at Judea, he doesn't think of it as the most dangerous place he's going to go. He knows that the cross is far more dangerous, and he still intends to go there. This is why he gets the right to be king over your life and death. And this is why when Lazarus is dead, he understands the magnitude of it. He knew it was coming. But there's more to this story. There's so much more to this story. But for now, what I want to do is I want to pose to you an opportunity, an invitation for you to be challenged. An opportunity for you to respond. So I'm going to ask you to stand. And I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Some of you are thinking to yourself, you never give us point number four. Jesus knows how long each of us will live. Point number four. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you for the breath in our lungs. For the very ability just to exist in this world. That we have so much resource, so much more measurable than we can possibly imagine. Two and a half billion heartbeats, Lord. Lord, I plead with you today that each and every one of us would measure out our life in the heartbeats that you have given us, the ones that we have wasted, the ones that are in front of us, and what we will do with each and every one of them. And I pray that you would put intentional meaning in each of them, and right now in the next few heartbeats, the ones that are just in front of us, Lord, that we might cry out to you and say, Lord, we are grateful that you go into Judea because it proves that you love us because you knew it was dangerous. Lord, we're grateful that you go far beyond today, that you go all the way to Gotham, that you go to the cross, that you come deeply in to the dangerous places of this world, that we might know salvation, that we might know a king who is over life and death, that we might grab hold of you and say, Lord, tell me what you want me to do with these heartbeats. Lord, for some of us that have lived over half of our life, Lord, half still have four million left, hopefully. I pray that you would give meaning and intentional purpose to each and every one of these heartbeats. Lord, that at the end, we could, we could afford you safe to our King. Lord, we knew you knew when we would die. I hope you're pleased with what we did with the heartbeat you gave us. I pray that we'll respond, Lord, this morning. That we'll respond 
giving you the rest of our life, every moment. Lord, because we know that you love us, you know our context, and that you're keenly aware of how dangerous it is to reach into our dangerous lives and save us. Lord, we thank you. And we ask, Lord, that as we respond, Lord, that you receive us. We ask for this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.